درود به مردم شریف ایران من شهر افشار هستم میزبان شما در پالیتکس 365 امروز مجددا آقای جانتان هرناف دعوت شده به برنامه از نیویورک ایشون یه جورنالیست هست در نیویورک اما در زمینه خاورمیانی و مخصوصا در یک صاحب نظر و کارشناس در سابقه اسرائیل و جنگایی که اسرائیل با حماس داشته در خاورمیانه و مخصوصا این حوادث چند ماه اخیر که متاسفانه تمام افکار دنیا رو گرفته تا حدی که ما هی دولت ایران رو مقصر میدونن و هی مردم فلسطین بیگناه جونشون رو دست میدن و مخصوصا مردم بیگناه اسرائیلی که اکتبر 7 به دست حماس کشته شدن یا گروگان شدن خلاصه آقای هرناف مجددا به برنامه برگشته که بتونه ما را یه ذره آگاهی بیشتری برامه فراهم کنه روما رو روشنتر کنه در این موضوع و یه ذره چند تا ادش سوال کنیم که واقعا آینده اسرائیل و فلسطین چی هست بقیه برنامه به انگلیسی تهیه شده پس از اون لحاظ ما رو ببخشید uh, Jonathan Harnoff, uh, welcome back to Politics 365, bearing with me for my very brief and uh, uh, abbreviated introduction. Um, please uh, tell us a little bit quickly about your background again, and let's just jump into the latest events and start with, with what we think is uh, the communication between uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu and what, what many observe as some republic riff or a disagreement between how fast Israel should withdraw or stop its uh, its military campaign uh, and not go into Rafah uh, and what to do about helping the innocent people of uh, Palestine. So welcome back. Let's start with that. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show again, Shariar. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name's Jonathan Haranoff. I'm a journalist based in New York, focusing primarily on Israel, Iran, and the broader Middle East. Um, and to your question, uh, the past four months have been, you know, very difficult for both Israelis and Palestinians. And um, Israel has stayed firm in its stated goals of, twin goals of eliminating Hamas while also freeing um, the hostages who have been held, innocent hostages who have been held by Hamas uh, for far too long. And we know now that there are around 130 hostages still held and around 30 of them are presumed to have been killed um, while in captivity, which is tragic news. Uh, to your question about the uh, relationship or the deterioration of relations between President Biden and Netanyahu, um, it's important to state that this isn't a relationship that started on October the 7th. Netanyahu and Biden have known each other, have been friends for around 40 years. Um, and uh, there's a very uh, well-known anecdote that um, Biden wrote Netanyahu a note once saying that, you know, he wrote, Bibi, I love you, but I don't agree with the damn thing that you have ever said. And um, that I'm sure remains true to this day. So while there may be um, some public disagreements between uh, what Biden and his administration want to do in terms of uh, Israel's uh, war in in Gaza, um, the support 
transcends any prime minister in Israel, and it also transcends any uh, specific president. The, the The relationship between Israel and the United States is very firm, and that's and it's it's true to this uh, conflict as well because the war between Israel and Hamas isn't confined to Gaza. It's um, a much broader conflict that also involves, you know, extremely powerful. Uh, foes in the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, Hezbollah in in Lebanon, and those, and the Houthis in Yemen, and all of those forces have already directly impacted the U.S. as well. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, mentioning that and uh, reminding us of the longevity of their relationship. They've both been statesmen for decades, been on the international stage for many, many years, and uh, but they also, from a personality standpoint, they bring very different things to the table, right? So Netanyahu, former IDF military, uh, you know, definitely his persona is a strong man. Uh, and as, as opposed to Biden, who I think prides himself as a diplomat, uh, less of a strong man. And those are both their strengths and weaknesses, because I think in this country, especially the Republican Party looks at Biden and sees uh, that his weakness or his lack of projecting strength in the Middle East and maybe even Ukraine prompted a strong uh, opposition from Putin and maybe in some degrees uh, Iran. Uh, and by contrast, Netanyahu, even within Israel, we were observing before October 7 that some of his very strong policies were causing a great rift within Israeli society before October 7. Uh, but those personalities aside, um, you know, uh, what do you feel, the, how do we get out of this? I mean, the, the, Israel, uh, really, Netanyahu's government is projecting more ground action. Meanwhile, the loss of innocent life is just becoming incalculable. Uh, there is very little uh, hope for the future. And some of the infrastructure destruction in uh, in the Gaza Strip, I don't know when they'll be uh, repaired. I mean, it, it makes that air, most of the, the Gaza Strip, uninhabitable. So how do we go from an almost an uninhabitable, in the, let's say there's a ceasefire in 30 days, uh, to an uninhabitable uh, society in Gaza Strip to a two-state solution or, or peace or releasing, I mean, there's so much between here and there that caused by damage while going after the terrorist Hamas uh, infrastructure, right? How do we get there from there? Well, there's an extremely long way to go. And as you rightly pointed out, even once there's a ceasefire, whether temporary or full full, uh, full time ceasefire, um, the post Hamas Gaza, uh, we need to it's very important to have a, a plan in place so that something like this doesn't happen again, because, um, you know, you can't have a, a, a force like Hamas stay in power if you want sustainable peace, which is something that I dearly want, and I'm sure many of your listeners want as well, because you, you want a stable, secure, prosperous um, Israel, and you also want the Palestinians to have uh, stability, security, peace, and you can't have that uh, when it's governed by a force that doesn't take its own interests at heart, and is much more focused on killing people as opposed to protecting uh, their own. Um, so whatever future Gaza looks like, it needs to be governed by either a single party or force or a coalition of forces that prioritize the safety of Palestinians over the destruction of, of the 
of the state of Israel. Do you feel if Hamas is no more, uh, that uh, the good and innocent and honest people of Palestine and the Gaza Strip um, will be able to uh, govern? The, the, I mean, the Palestinian Authority aside, let's say, would, would they be able to stand up on their own and still maintain whatever resistance, political resistance, uh, or, or debate, however which way you want to characterize it, uh, with the Israeli government? about the settlements or all the issues of concern, two-state solution, without creating another vacuum where Hamas 2.0 could evolve in six months or a year. That's why post-war planning is absolutely critical, and it's as critical a mission as the, you know, the fighting itself, so that you don't create a vacuum and so that a Hamas 2.0 doesn't emerge and just you know perpetuate this, this horrible fighting. Um, I don't know if it's a it's the million dollar question right now. I don't know if if the force that comes after Hamas in Gaza is a single political movement, whether it's the PA, which hasn't you know been that convincing, or a coalition of forces in in the region who have a vested interest in uh, you know the prosperity of the Palestinians, and that's why you know this isn't just Israel's problem to deal with. This you know the the Arab world, which has so, shown sympathy to the Palestinian cause. Um, should also step up and, you know, sort of uh, turn its sympathy into, into action. And it can do that by, you know, taking part in this post-war planning and making sure that Gaza is, um, you know, as prosperous a place as any place in the Middle East, as, as Dubai, as Tel Aviv, so that, and, and so that war doesn't, doesn't reoccur. You know, it's, uh, thank you for mentioning the role of the other Arab states. It's, uh, I was puzzled about this until I studied it and I, and I learned that uh, the, the answer to the other million dollar question, which is why doesn't the Arab states around Israel and the Gaza Strip be more accommodating towards the Palestinian people or let them in? And the answer that I got was every time over the past few decades, that has happened. The Palestinians were allowed to go and migrate to other uh, countries around uh, Israel and the Gaza Strip. They began to uh, sow discontent. They began to rebel and push that uh, society into a conflict which it didn't want and it didn't have with Israel. So now all those Arab states have their walls built around the Gaza Strip and they're not uh, apart from a few, I don't know how many refugees are around in some, but for the most part, uh, there's probably more uh, Latin Americans coming over the American southern border than there are Palestinians going over to the Arab states next door. So is that still the case? I mean, when you say they should do, the Arab states should do more, shouldn't it start with letting war refugees uh, come to their countries? I can't comment on what, you know, policies should be of, of any particular Arab state, but I also don't necessarily think that um, the way Arab states can get involved is to just, you know, encourage the, the migration of, of Palestinians from Gaza. It's also to um, focus on those Palestinians who don't want to leave Gaza, but also disavow Hamas and making sure that they have, um, you know, the, the, the tools, the infrastructure, as you mentioned, the sort of stable economy and, and a life so that they uh, don't have to fall, uh, resort to um, 
the fanatical elements of their society and they can also they can focus on themselves they can focus on peace but um there's no doubt that there are uh, there's a lot of things that the the Arab world can do and if you just but it's also that there's a balance that they need to strike if you look at Saudi Arabia for example um, before October the 7th there was so much momentum towards a uh, Israeli Saudi normalization and some say that may have even been what like caused Hamas to carry out these attacks to sort of stop any such um, normalization from occurring so it, it's in Saudi Arabia sees that it's in its in, in its interest in its security security interest diplomatic interest to have these relations with Israel but at the same time it has publicly expressed sympathy for um, the Palestinians it's the sort of uh, protector of, of Islam and it's the protector of some of the most holiest sites in Islam and it's got this bond with Palestinians so it's got to strike this sort of balance between the two and uh, and uh, I hope to see more of that it's a very difficult solution and, and crisis, and it seems every generation is dealing with another version of this conflict, right? Uh, the, the, in fact, uh, the movie Golda is on uh, on HBO right now, and, uh, and I've watched it several times, and uh, the Yom Kippur War, and every decade, you know, the Six-Day War, I mean, you have all these constant attacks by... Uh, Arab states and Arab forces on Israel over since its uh, inception, um, and every generation honestly is saddled with the same problem: uh, how do we contribute to Middle East peace between these two states? Um, it just it just becomes harder and harder because the same people, those fanatical elements, I think you're mentioning, uh, 100% true in Hamas, they weren't born fanatical; they were they they grew up in an environment where fanaticism was cultivated and it took shape in the minds of the youth. And as soon as they could bear arms, they became victims of a fanatical philosophy, uh, which maybe they inherited from their environment, from their parents. I don't know. But now we have generation, another generation impacted by war. They've lost their siblings, their loved ones, what have you. Uh, it seems like whatever solution we can come up with now, it it needs to be generationally looking forward to uh, cultivate uh, a sense of tolerance between these two people uh, that have so much in common. As they say, they have more in common than not. But but so I kind of just from a societal standpoint, I want to hear your cultural standpoint. I want to hear your thoughts on that, and then I want to turn to Iran and the few minutes we have left there there are so many similarities and like when i'm you know people in israel oftentimes refer to their you know palestinians or their arab neighbors as as cousins as as Dim, which means cousins in hebrew um but you know in terms of this generational in finding a solution to it that's why it's such a difficult problem to solve because you don't just want to you know solve it for one year for two years five years it needs to sort of be a permanent solution and in order to achieve that you need something drastic and we in the past few decades we've seen some momentum some sometimes we get close to a solution but we've never quite got there yet um, and the scary thing for me is that this uh, Middle East conflict hasn't stayed confined to the Middle East if you just look at you know, it's it's also expanded and morphed in in all sorts of ways. If, for example, on college campuses, people who 
may have never ever been to the Middle East before have suddenly taken very strong stances, polarizing stances, suddenly, you know, seen other students who support other, you know, movements or, for example, pro-Palestinians against pro-Israelis. There's been so much polarization, so much disinformation and and uh, social media has, has played a huge, huge role in that. And it's, it's scary as well because we've reached a point where uh, this conflict isn't always grounded in truth and facts. It's it's grounded in a lot of misinformation that's spurred on by social media. So it's it's just added another dimension to a war, a conflict that was already extremely difficult to solve. 100% true. Any conflict, uh, I remember the 1979 Iranian revolution, there were, you know, all kinds of uh, incendiary rumors being spread by the, by the, revolutionary forces, I guess, against the Shah, which which I think misled many people into believing that uh, that Khomeini had a better solution, uh, which clearly didn't work out for 45 years. Uh, and now when you add to it, we have this conflict, brewing conflict, social media just it exasperates an already impossible situation. In a couple of minutes we have left, let me ask you about Iran. Of course, Iran has been feeding Hamas and Hezbollah. And I just I just have to wonder, you know, uh, if Iran wasn't here, uh, mm -hmm. the, the regime, not the country, if the Iranian regime wasn't here, um, would Hamas and Hezbollah have any feet to stand on? Would there be another supporter? That's one half of the question. And the second half is... Uh, I think if Iran were to, they would get more uh, diplomatic or regional power by being peace brokers like Qatar instead of being terrorism uh, sponsors. Uh, I mean, how do you feel about those two? Iran as a country is an enormous, beautiful place with you know thousands of years of history. Um, to your first question, we almost got the answer to that. Um, in the Massa Amini protest, but we almost we got a sort of glimpse of of what the people wanted, what they were fighting for, and what a future Iran could look like. Unfortunately, we didn't get quite there. But um, you know, it, it depends on what would come after the current regime. If it was a, a a different force that was very similar to the current regime, we probably wouldn't see a change. But if it was uh, a, a more secular, freer society, then we may um, have a more prosperous Iran that focuses more on, you know, being this uh, powerhouse in the Middle East that wants, that's going to force peace, force peace in a good way, as opposed to one that wants to sow discord and destruction and chaos in the Middle East, which is what we've seen it do now. And, you know, an important point to remember is we've seen the Islamic Republic of Iran through its proxy network uh, cause so much chaos and destruction in the Middle East in the past couple months through its uh, proxies of Hezbollah, Hamas and Houthis that we forget that it's also causing a lot of uh, pain and destruction to its own people inside Iran. And that's what prompted the, you know, Masa Amini's death wasn't, didn't occur in isolation. She was one of many uh, young women who were persecuted and ended up losing their lives. Um, so it's important to remember that it's, it's playing a dual destructive role in its own country and abroad as well in a future Iran you know, it depends on what comes after. It could be the most incredible country and force in the region. And it can also be another, again, equally destructive. Yeah. 
Uh, well, as we say in Iran, from your lips to God's ears, uh, I, I hope uh, Iran realizes its true potential. Uh, as a diaspora, we all know what's possible. Uh, and I feel like the Iranian people um, deserve much better. Um, and uh, the world will see the difference um, once hopefully this evolution uh, in Iran takes its course. Um, and begins to move towards the right direction. Jonathan Haranoff, thank you so much for joining us again. We learned a lot. Please come back and see us soon. Thank you so much for having me on.